Let's pray. Almighty God, uh, grateful to you for this day. I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters here. We pray that you would help us to grow in the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, today, Lord, and throughout the week, and help us to focus on you through all that life brings us, and help us to grow as a, a church family through trials and tribulations, Lord, and guide us to your word and guide us to uh, your son and each other. Help us to um, focus on you. Um, help others to come to know these truths that uh, we hear every week through this pulpit. Help us to uh, bring people to this place and disciple them and help them to grow in the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. And we are grateful to you for this day. Pray that it would be edifying and glorifying to your name. Amen. If you would please turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 3. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And here we have from Christ, we have commands and promises. Commands and promises. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe, uh, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me also. In my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms, many places to dwell, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Amen. <clears throat> this, uh, Jesus gives these commands and these words of comfort to his disciples in the middle of this discourse. Because he had just been explaining to them that one of them was going to deny, was, excuse me, was going to betray him. They're not quite sure. I don't, I don't think they're quite sure who that is. It's not clear to them. Maybe John and Peter, excuse me, uh, yes, John and Peter know it's Judas, but the twelve or the other, the others don't know. Peter was told very clearly in front of all of the disciples that are there that he was going to deny the Lord. And in a very true sense, leader, uh, Peter's kind of like the leader of the twelve. Under Jesus, of course. So, you have his betrayal, you have his this denial, but then you also have his departure. He's leaving. So, these three things are coming together, and what Jesus does is he is going to give comfort to his disciples because of this trial that they're going to go through. the disciples were protected. The chief priests, the guards, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, yes, they hurled insults, they wanted to kill them, but they didn't really do much. The disciples, in a very true sense, were safe. You think of instances like when they were in the boat, 
does he do? He just speaks a word. So they had this great confidence that Christ would be able to protect them, to care for them, and their hope was that he would establish a kingdom. So that they would be harassed by their enemies, the rules would be destroyed, and the worship of God would be restored. But now Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed. Peter's going to deny me. Oh, and on top of that, I'm leaving. So the disciples' hearts are troubled. They are shaken. They are shaken because they are losing his care and protection in this world. And it's very interesting how most translations put this something to like let not your heart let not your heart be troubled. But this is a command. And what is Jesus Jesus is saying to them is don't let your heart trouble you. What you, what you are about to experience, what you are about to go through, was the greatest trial in the lives of the disciples. The loss of their Lord. The greatest difficulty that they would face. them they're hiding in an upper room basically barricading themselves in hoping nobody comes they were afraid they were afraid I love uh, Luther's commentary on this section of John is fantastic he says this as a good and faithful Lord Christ anticipates such anxiety and fear he comforts his disciples and urges them not to despair Stand firm. He begins by telling them what they will and must encounter, so that when it happens, they may recall that he had told them in advance and had admonished them not to worry. You think of if Christ didn't say anything, if he just continued to preach the gospel, acted like nothing was happening, and all of a sudden all these guards show up and he's crucified a few days later. What it devastated his disciples. But what he does is he prepares them. Luther continues, he says, First of all, he says, Let not your hearts trouble you. It is as if he were saying, My dear disciples, I know very well what your lot will be after I depart from you and leave you alone. Sheer terror and fear will overwhelm you. The spectacle of my fate will fill you with trepidation. Your hearts will melt within you and you will scarcely know where to turn. I am telling you this before it happens, to keep you from growing faint-hearted. Be bold, and prepare for the struggle that lies ahead. When this time comes, then think of my admonition, lest you soon lose heart and despair. This is exactly what the Lord is doing, and He's doing it in this particular context. Right? He, he is addressing them, but there's a word for us too in this. This life is described in many, many ways in the Bible. It's described as a pilgrimage, but it's also described as a veil of tears. 
We are not promised peace and prosperity and a quote-unquote good life in a, in a worldly sense. As God's people living in a fallen world, we will encounter the greatest difficulties. Uh, people that we love will die. Those who are closest to us. It's going to happen. Everyone that you know will die at some point. But not only that, many of those people might be taken in a way that is shocking, astounding, unexpected. It may be a short process. It may be a long process. Us personally, we will suffer in this world great difficulties. Difficulties with, with friends and family and, and neighbors and in our city and state and country and as citizens of this world. Every Christian must be ready to encounter worries and troubles. We must. And of course the Bible prepares us for this. The Bible tells us this. That that is what we will encounter. One more quote from Luther and we'll look at some passages. He says this. This should be the attitude of the disciples. May it last as long as it pleases God. Today happy, cheerful, tomorrow sad. Today alive, tomorrow dead. Today good fortune and security. Tomorrow every kind of disease. And we will not keep snoring away as though there were no trouble. And now Christ is able to offer this comfort to his disciples, of course. He's able to say to them, do not let your heart trouble you. And that's a command. He's commanding them. He's able to do this because he himself faced great trouble for them. But now, look at the antidote. What's the cure, the remedy? What, what fixes a troubled heart? Listen to what he says. You're, you're translate, so, these two um, commands, believe in God and believe in me, should be translated that way. Some, some, some translations will take one as a command, believe in God, and also something to that effect, or like mine does here. Listen to it. believe in God as a statement of fact and not a command. You see that? You believe in God? Believe in me also. That's a command. But the first one is translated as a statement of fact. But these two are commands. They're imperatives. He's, he's saying, and the first verb is an imperative too. So he's saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. Here's the remedy. Believe in God. Believe in me also. That is what cures a troubled heart in God. But in what sense? Faith in what God has revealed in His Word. Faith in what God tells us about our life in this world. Listen to what God says to us in Psalm 84. In Psalm 84, verses 8-5, through 5, we, we read this. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you. That's the blessed man. He doesn't look to his intellect, to his physical strength, to his financial status, to his network of people. He doesn't look to those things as his strength. He looks to God. That is the blessing.
man whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Right? His heart is set on the ways of the Lord. As they pass through in, on pilgrimage now, as, as this man, as the blessed men and the blessed women are on pilgrimage, as they pass through the valley of Baca, or the valley of tears, or where we get the phrase, the veil of tears. As they pass through this veil of tears, they make it a spring. Isn't that amazing? The Christian can walk through this world and walk through this veil of tears and they can make it a spring. They can make it joyful. Not because the Christian uh, lives disconnected from this world. Because God has told him that in this life you will encounter many tribulations. Not a few. Not, a, not some small problems. But tribulations. They make it a spring. The rain covers it with pools. And the, the NASB, I like what they do with pools there. They translate that as blessings. In other words, what the psalmist is saying is that when God gives us lemons, we make lemonade. That's what we do. That's what God's people do. They learn to trust in God and what God says and to depend upon Him and to find their strength in Him alone. So we believe in Him. We believe in God. We believe what His Word says. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. One will be lost. Well, they're on pilgrimage. They're going through this valley of tears. Great difficulties, right? As Paul says, he's pressed in on every side, he says in 2 Corinthians. I mean, he, all kinds of, of troubles, tribulations, difficulties, agonies, tears. But he's going to make it to Zion. And every believer will. That is our hope and our confidence. O Lord of hosts, hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. But then Christ says also, he commands, you believe in God, believe in him also. Believe what I've said to you. Believe in promises to you. And we can, we can believe in his person in who He is, and in what He did for us. Now, if He's not God, this is blasphemous. You know, when we uh, are explaining to people that Jesus is God, you know, we go to John 1, we go to these places, but this statement here, where He puts faith in Himself on par with faith in God, this is a clear reference to Him being God Himself. And here we learn this intimate relationship that there is between the Father and the Son also. And between what the Father is doing for us in His Son. Our faith must be directed towards God and towards Christ. When we are, at all times, but particularly when, particularly when we are troubled in this world. I re read a very good um, illustration. So. Anglican minister, you know, before the Anglicans won apostate, he was illustrate. He wanted he he had been um, uh, sort of taken.
taken by the way his daughter was playing with a particular toy. So they're sitting in the living room, and she just loved this thing. And every time they were in the living room, after supper, before supper, in the morning, she had this toy that she was playing with. And it was a really cheap, old, ratty little toy. But she just loved the thing. And she was kind of entranced by it. You know, she cried when she couldn't find it. She argued with you when you couldn't find it. It was one of those... Uh, I had a daughter that had the same thing with a blankie. She couldn't sleep without it. She couldn't do anything without this blankie. But the father says to his daughter, Sweetheart, do you love that toy? And she said, Yes, Father, I, I, I really do. I love it. And he says, Do you love your father? And she says, Absolutely, I love, I love you. Would you do anything I asked you? And she said, Yes. He said, Throw the toy in the fire. She said, you know, her face filled, you know, red tears coming down her eyes. And he says to her, do you not love me? So she takes the toy and she throws it in the fire. And the thing burns up. And she's heartbroken. Well, the next day he comes home and with a box full of new, brand new toys. Gives them to her. And uh, she's a little girl. She plays with them, completely forgets about the burned toy. Trust and reliance in God is letting go of all of the vanities this world has to offer. And part of those vanities are thinking that we will never go through difficulty. The unbeliever thinks that way. It is ingrained in his mind. You think of it, um, uh, uh, sending positive energy your way. You've heard people say that, right? Sending positive energy your way. Manifesting those things that I want in my life by means of saying that I'm going to have that job. I am the, you know, whatever, CEO or the executive. All a bunch of nonsense. And you know what those people don't know how to do? When difficulties come into their life, they do not know how to live. I read this years ago, and I don't remember the, the study, but I can look for it if, if, uh, if somebody wants to test me. What, what do you call that? If you want to fact check me. But you know where suicide rates are the highest? In the wealthiest places in the world. That's where suicide rates are the highest. You know why? They don't know how to deal with trouble. They cannot. Because they trust in themselves, they trust in their money, they trust in their strength, they trust in, they trust in worthless things. What the author to the book of uh, what Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, would say is they trust in vanity, things that are vain. To turn your back on the world, on all that the world has to offer, and freely to receive all that God has offered you in Christ is how to live your best life. That's how you live it. And what we do is we receive His promises and we rest upon those promises. If Christ says to us in His Word, or I love the way that John puts it in Revelation 1.9. I've read that passage multiple times to y'all, but He says, I'm your brother in the kingdom and in the tribulation. If God says to us that that is 
what we ought to expect in this world, then we need to believe Him. And when difficulties come into our life, then we need to trust Him. And what is amazing about our Lord is that He has sanctified everything that we experience in this world. If, if I'm driving on 209, God forbid, and I die in a car accident, God has sanctified that for me. Death is how I'll go to heaven. There is nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Everything is sanctified. All of it. Now, that's not to say that we will not cry and be heartbroken and everything else. But we can with confidence say, God has sanctified, that he has, he, has, he has put me in this situation and He is sanctifying me through it. And this sanctification may end up, uh, my sanctification in this trial may end up being my glorification. But I'm going to trust Him. We're going to receive His promises and we're going to rest upon those promises. And one thing that we have to remember, too, is that as Jesus gives this advice, He's not doing it as some kind of a computer, a robot. He was troubled. Listen, uh, John 12, 27-28. Now my soul is troubled. Say the word. Chapter 13, verse 21. When Jesus had said these things, He was troubled in spirit. He knew what it was to be troubled. He's not saying this because he did not experience agony. But what was going on when he was praying and his disciples were asleep? That was his agony. He was agonizing the fact that he would now have to bear the sins of the world and receive the just judgment due for sin. Yet he was sinless. I love how Psalm 42, looking forward to the cross, puts this. In Psalm 42, beginning at verse 8, we read this. And look at how he begins. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night His song shall be with me. A prayer to the, to the God of my life. I will say to my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? My enemies reproach me. Well, they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Where do you hear that? When he's on the cross. And here is the book of Psalms, right? This is a messianic psalm speaking prophetically, reveals to us the agony that the Savior was going through as he's being humiliated on the cross. Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. So there, hanging on the cross, what does He look to? His resurrection and entrance into heaven and the worship of God. His disciples scattered, they hid, they denied Him, but His hope was set on God, not on men. And He loved His disciples. He died for them. He's going to pray for them here in a few chapters. 
Yet his hope was in God. So you have the command. When our hearts are troubled, we must believe in God and believe in Christ. But now look at the promises. In the house of my Father, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have said it to you. Now what's the connection here? What's, what's, what's the connection between believing in God, believing in Christ, and now this concept of mansions and rooms? and what, What's the connection? Well, th think... Um, don't, don't think like... Uh, first and foremost, like a structure. Like Jesus is going to heaven to be a heavenly carpenter to build houses for us to dwell in. Don't think that way. Listen to John, and, and I think here you get a little bit of a, uh, an insight into this. If you Listen to John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. There's a special privilege, right? A, an authority that the children of God have. There's a special authority and privilege, and I've used this before, that your children have in your house. And what is it? Well, there's, right, they, they have free reign of the home, not in a disorganized and, and um, uh, uh, sinful way, but it's their home. It's so much their home that at times one of the rooms is dedicated for them. Or if you have a lot of kids, multiple rooms are dedicated for them. This is very similar to what he, he, he just finished saying to Peter. In 3.36. Listen to what he says to Peter there. Uh, 13, excuse me. 13.36. He says to Peter, when Peter asks, where are you going? He says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you shall follow me afterward. What, he, what he is saying, in other words, and he's using this language of abodes and places of rest, a place where you can take up residence, in other words, to speak of the coming of his kingdom. That's what he's talking about. You're going to be in this world harassed, mistreated, but there is a kingdom, and that kingdom is coming, and I will bring that kingdom with me. Again, this is another aspect of faith. One translation puts it, and you shall take up residency with him. And that, that is correct. That's the idea. That is, there are enough rooms for all. There are many rooms. There's enough room for all. For all of Christ's disciples in His kingdom. In the house of my Father. This is an expression that He uses repeatedly. He refers to the temple as the house of His Father. But then outside of the Gospels, this language is picked up. And more than likely... I think they're getting it from, from Christ. From what he says here. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.1. So, so I don't want you to think about it. The, the truth is that at some point in history, heavenly Jerusalem, the place where God is worshipped in perfect holiness, will come to this earth when this earth is renewed. What that all is going to look like, I don't know. 
but it is a reality. Listen to what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 5.1 Now he's talking about the death of believers. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, he's talking about our bodies, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavenlies. There's, there is a place in heaven, and now granted, um, we die, we go there as disembodied spirits. But Jesus is saying that I'm going to bring that place with me. Heaven will come to earth. And we won't be disembodied spirits. We will have physical bodies. And we'll be running around this planet sinless. Amen. Look at how the author to the book of Hebrews puts it. Two verses in chapter 11 of Hebrews. Speaking of the patriarchs, he said, For he waited, verse 10, Hebrews 11.10, and then Hebrews 11.16. Hebrews 11.10. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Verse 16. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So it's not a house anymore. He said, I've prepared an entire city for you. A place where, where I am to be worshipped. And this is the same language that Jesus uses here. I'm going to prepare a place for you. God has prepared that place. In Revelation chapter 21, listen to this in uh, Revelation chapter 21, you have the same idea. So, so at this point, all of the enemies of God have been destroyed. And what does John see? Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And now listen to what it says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Which is absolutely beautiful, is what he sees. Right, what, he, what he sees is just breathtakingly beautiful. And I heard a voice from heaven, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell. Now that word, dwell, and the word tabernacle, and the word that we have here for rooms are all very similar words. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be their God. Excuse me. Uh, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. So, what Jesus is saying is that, do not be afraid, believe me, 
Believe God. And here's a promise. No matter what you face in this earth, I am bringing heaven to earth. It doesn't matter. Jesus can wait another 2,000 years to come. He can wait another 10,000 years if He wants to come. But His people live in light of this confidence that He's coming. And if He's coming, what is He going to do? He's going to remove everything that troubled His disciples. Now, when, you, when you were a kid, if you had a room, where did you go when you were troubled? You went in your room. Why? You felt comfortable there. In a sense where you felt safe. Maybe, they, maybe my dad won't come in here and spank me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that, that's what he's conveying here. That, that heaven is a place for us. But heaven is not... Um, I remember... That, so I never met my grandmother, but uh, I did spend a lot of time with Jessica's grandmother. And Jessica's grandmother had these... Um, she had, her house was carpeted. And she had like these plastic rugs that you had to walk on in the house and she kept the plastic wrappers on her couch right? so everything was just wrapped up and you felt like you shouldn't be sitting there or eating in her house but the point that Jesus is making is that heaven is for us heaven is not a museum where you're just going to walk around you know keep your arms at your side and you know look no it's a place for us to dwell it is our home the trials and the tribulations that the disciples would face would lead them to heaven before Jesus returned. All of them. All of them died. Many of them from tradition. It's not very clear. Now James, of course, dies in... Uh, John's brother dies in the book of Acts. But the others, we don't know their fate. But from tradition, the majority of them, only John was the only one who wasn't martyred. And where did they go? Well, all of the trouble was removed. Their hearts are not troubled anymore. Paul is not in heaven worried about the church or about anyone. He is rejoicing in God, his maker and redeemer. So uh, Jesus comforts his disciples with this promise. And then he says, in verse 3, Another promise here. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. He has not lost. So, so the first promise is there is a place of rest for weary and troubled souls. And either death will usher you into that place or Jesus will return and he will remove all of the troubles that we face in this world. The second promise is this. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's what he's saying to his disciples. There is nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If I'm departing, I must return. And if you were to, and if his disciples or Peter, let's say Peter asked here, let's insert, a, not really, but let's insert a question. What do you mean, Lord? Would you return? He said, because you are here. And I must bring you to myself. 
This is why Jesus died. Jesus died to have a people. To have His own people. And to have His own people live in eternal holiness and blessedness. And that's why He will return. So as long as there are Christians in this world, you know what our hope is? He's coming. He's coming. And no matter of difficulty is going to separate us from His love. Uh, I, I love it how, how the angels in the, in the book of Acts, so Jesus goes up into heaven and the disciples are doing exactly what every disciple would do, is they're just standing there looking up and looking up and looking up. And the angels say to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Why are you doing that? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come. Don't, don't, don't worry about looking up. Don't worry about that. He's going to come back. It, it is a marked certain Jesus will return. And, and we're all going to know when He comes. It's not going to be like a big secret. Oh, Hey, Jesus came last night. How do you know? Well, you know, my dad's clothes is in the living room. Paul says it very clear. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. You think the voice of the seraphim shook the temple of God as they cried out. Well, Jesus, when he comes, will know. It's going to be a cosmic dog whistle. The certainty of his return, the certainty of his return, the certainty of his return is objective. It is a truth. Every single Christian, even in the Apostles' Creed, the return of Christ is something that every single Christian confesses. So it's an objective truth, and the Bible tells us this. But there is also a subjective effect. It, it, it affects us as individuals and ought to. Right? So in 1 John, if, if we believe in Him, what does John say? Well, if we know that He's coming back, what are we going to do? We're going to purify ourselves just as He is pure. Because He's coming. And also, for those who are troubled and in distress, and going through great difficulties, what's the subjective force of His coming? I'm going to be delivered from this. I'm going to be delivered from this one way or another. Either God will resolve it in this world me, or he will take me out of this world to be with him, or he'll come back and transform me and this world. We can have 100% confidence in that. I love how the author to the book of Hebrews puts this, um, this, this aspect of Christ's return, this objective force the, the second coming has. In 928 he says this, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time. And that is what this verse ought to do. It ought to cause eager anticipation for his return. Right? Not an eager anticipation that makes us passive. Right? We ought to continue to read and to pray and to labor and to serve God 
and to serve one another. But there is this anticipation that ought to be building in our hearts. When you wake up in the morning, Jesus might come today. He might. He might come this afternoon. We don't know when He's coming. But we can be certain that He is coming because He promised us in this book. So in light of this, brothers and sisters, let us pray and sing. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Your Word and for the promises Your Word holds out to us. We ask You, even now, Lord, that You would relieve our troubled hearts. Help us, Lord, to believe in You. Help us to believe in our Lord Christ. And we cling tight to the promises in Your Word. Particularly, Lord, this morning as we think about Your second coming, may our minds and our hearts be taken up by this truth and may it cause in us great hope, great joy, great purity, great anticipation, and great fervency to labor while it is still day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.